we do have a long way to go to get all of the people registered to voting aid. Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. We will turn out to vote this cycle because we all understand what's at stake. Let's head to Arizona where Republicans are recounting two million ballots by hand. Welcome to Dead Men Don't Vote, the podcast where election experts help you, the American voter, understand how elections work and how you can help restore confidence in American democracy. At the Trust the Vote Project, we spent over 15 years talking with and learning from election administrators and government officials about how votes are cast, counted, and reported so that we can help ensure elections are run in a verifiable, accurate, secure, and transparent manner. On Dead Men Don't Vote, we share what we've learned. We provide insights from the world-class team we've built. We interview leading election experts and thought leaders passionate about our democracy and explore election issues and controversies. We want to rise above the partisanship and muddied waters to answer all of your questions about elections in a way that's pro-democracy and inspires trust in our election process. Hi, I'm Gregory Miller, software industry veteran, non-practicing IP lawyer, and tireless advocate for verifiable elections. I'll be your host for today's episode four, the power of paper ballots, the currency of our democracy. Thank you to everybody who's listened to our first three episodes. We love producing these podcasts for you and want to especially thank every single one of you who's left us or is about to leave us a review on Apple iTunes and other podcast platforms. Thank you. Today, I'm joined by John Sebas, OSED Institute's Chief Election Technology Whiz Guy, and Jenya Coulter, former election administrator in Polk County, Florida, and Director of Stakeholder Relations at the OSED Institute. Thanks, Greg. Well, we're a couple of people who you might call geeks because we love high tech. We've been working in it for years. We're developing high tech solutions. And paradoxically, that's why I am so excited to sing the praises of probably the oldest technology that we use in elections, paper. Paper is amazing, right? While digital records help us in so many ways, filling in those bubbles with permanent ink remains the best way to ensure that elections are verifiable, accurate, secure, and transparent. Voters trust paper, and election administrators know that they can turn to paper ballots of record whenever there are problems. And even when there's not problems, paper ballots for routine ballot audits, but more on that later. We all remember the problem with paper ballots back in 2000, Bush Gore, and there have been complaints about electronic voting systems going back to 2004. What is the actual solution here? Oh, hi. Um, I'm a paper ballot. Millions of will line up coast to coast, have their names crossed off of a paper list, only to take another sheet of paper and choose more names off list. Why do we use paper for federal elections when we use computers for nearly everything else? From grocery shopping to banking to registering for a summer camp, it's hard to think of anything that we aren't able to do online. Yeah, in fact, the problems in the 2000 election with the hanging chads that you mentioned in Florida led to us to move to electronic system. A close inspection of the world's big democracies shows that many, including Germany, the UK, Australia, and Canada, don't use electronic machines. They use paper. And many countries that once used electronics for voting are going back to paper. Ten years ago, only 37% of voters in America were using hand-marked paper ballots. Now it's 67% according to verifiedvoting.org. Why? 
Test after test has proven that electronic voting machines can have big problems. At best, they can break down or display confusing or incorrect information. But at worst, electronic voting systems can be hacked quite easily. I don't think that what we have in place right now is quite enough, given all the concern that's out there in the public. John Eves is a Democrat running for Secretary of State in this month's primary election. He is among the candidates urging the state election board to switch from the state's voting machines to hand-marked paper ballots. I mean, you can see all the candidates right in front of you, and you just mark it like the good old SAT. Yeah, but if I miss one with a pen, then I can just get another paper ballot and start all over again like a human being. That's one of the benefits of democracy, I guess. But, you know, honestly, I miss the lever machines already. I'm sure they miss you too. The lever machines. Well, let's talk about it. So why is paper so crucial to ensuring a trustworthy election, you know, where an election can achieve the mandates of being verifiable, accurate, secure, and transparent? What makes, in this digital age, paper so darn important to increase confidence in elections and their outcomes? As a former election administrator, Jenny, I want to start with you. Why do you think it's important? And what is important about paper? I am going to go full master of the obvious here. Paper ballots create a physical record of votes tallied in the election. With modern optical scan ballots, voters have the opportunity to verify the choices that they marked on their ballot prior to inserting it into a tabulator or returning the ballot by mail. Newer voting tabulators have the capability to scan, tabulate, and in some cases, create a digital image of the ballot that can be preserved for auditing purposes. But if the power goes out or there's been a security breach, the brilliance of paper comes into play because paper ballots can still be verified even when things otherwise go wrong. Now, granted, voter-marked paper ballots are not magic. They still need proper layout, design, printing, and storage, and they require just as strict of a chain of custody as any other component of a voting system. But durable paper ballots can really save an election when everything goes wrong. Well, Jenya, since you mentioned chain of custody and how important that is, which you just, you got to have it in order to do a ballot audit that, that, that I mentioned. But can you explain a little bit about what it actually is, how it works, and why it's important? I am so glad you asked, John. Chain of custody is basically the who, what, when, and where of the ballots, equipment, and personnel in the election. If you don't know how many ballots you have or where the ballot box has been lurking, that's a problem. Nothing should ever change hands without a form completed by both parties documenting who is giving the equipment to somebody, who is receiving the equipment and ballots, where the transfer took place, when it happened, where the next destination will be, who will be receiving it after that handoff, et cetera. And of course, the quantity and description of what you're transferring. That forms something that needs to be completed in ink. There needs preferably different color ink to receive who's handing it off and who's receiving and signed by all involved. Because if there is an undocumented break in the chain of custody, it does serious damage to the integrity of the election. The media will have a field day with it. And it also opens the door for legal action by a candidate if anything goes wrong during the election. That's not a risk worth taking. Okay, got it. And let me make sure I did get it exactly right, though. You're talking about not just the technical components, voting systems, touchscreen machines for voters with disabilities, tabulators. It's all that and every piece of paper, too. Is that right? Absolutely. You don't want any ballots to be unaccounted for because that means somebody could have been disenfranchised. You don't want that happening. 
Yeah. And I guess you also have to, you know, be able to truthfully say as an election official, I, I know that every ballot that got counted is a legitimate ballot and we didn't miss any and we didn't get any extras. Right. Exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well then that I think makes it clear why it's super important because looking at it from a technical perspective, election results get created from vote tallies and vote tallies are in most cases made by the ballot scanning machines or tabulators. So the election results are legitimate only if those numbers that come out of those machines are derived from legitimate paper ballots. And so you need evidence that they haven't been tampered with. You're counting the right ones. There's no extras, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I'd also like to make an additional point, which is that kind of control and that kind of evidence, the evidence that you're counting all and only legitimate ballots, you might think, uh, some people anyway, might think that that's relatively easy for ballots cast in person. But should also say that chain of custody is super important for absentee ballots as well, separate, separate issues. And in particular, all ballots, however they arrive, whether counted in person or go through the absentee process, there's just a requirement if you're going to do what's called a, a risk limiting audit. We can say a little bit more about that later, but chain of custody is really the foundation of the, the ability to basically say this is the legitimate election result. And in the case of absentee ballots, it's the, the ability to say every ballot that arrived by mail got processed. Every single one of them got decided whether it should or shouldn't be counted. I think you mentioned about the press having a field day. I think all of that stuff comes down to public trust. There's just an enormous amount of both legitimate concern and straight up disinformation that gets centered on this question. How do we know that those stacks of ballots that get counted are all legit? And are there some sitting around being misplaced? So paper is great for all the reasons that you said, but it also brings in other requirements so that it can be the basis for public trust. Does that make sense? Yes, it does, John. Now, ballot scanners, depending on who's making them, they're calibrated to accept a certain weight, smoothness, and opacity of the ballot stock that that ballots are printed on. And if it's on a piece of paper that it doesn't recognize and it doesn't have an identifier on it, such as a barcode and a specific layout of those black bars on the side called timing marks. If it's missing those, generally the, the scanner will kick out the ballot. The other scenario, which is a misplaced box of ballots, unfortunately, it happens. And that's why you have to be so diligent about making sure that those ballots are accounted for at all times. Because if those ballots get misplaced and no chain of custody has been documented, those ballots might not be tabulated unless compelled to by a court of law. I mean, election night, I've been there. It's chaotic. But paper ballots, in this case, are the only verifiable record you have of the election. So you need to know where they are. You need to know who had them. And you also need to know what, obviously, what the correct ballot is going to look like. And in case of ballots from military voters overseas, which may have to have been faxed back and they might not be in the right kind of paper you're going to need election workers from two different parties and supervised marking the voters' choices onto a ballot that would be regulation size and weight paper. So John, all these terms that we want to demystify, I want to tease out a little bit more about durability and the notion of a durable paper ballot. And when I think of the word durable, I think of it, it's long lasting. Maybe you can say a little bit about the, the different types of paper that are involved and why some of them aren't as good as others? Well, I think that Jenya just explained the 
most typical and most important type of paper ballot, which is the one that's pre-printed by local election officials on ballot stock used in polling places, sent out for absentee voters and stuff like that. So that's both important because physical durability is, is, is a real issue, but also because it's easier for observers, including somewhat suspicious observers in some cases, to make sure that all the ballots that get counted are legitimate. But as Jenny also said, there's a number of different ways that ballots can come in from military or overseas voters on you know non-standard paper and need to get transcribed. And that's another part of chain of custody is keeping the linkage between the original, which in some cases can even be like literally a handwritten ballot called a federal write-in absentee ballot, keeping a linkage between that and the the, the op-scan ballot. But the other reason why why durability is really important is that you can't have a 100% confident claim in the accuracy of an election result if you don't have the ability to cross-check the work of the computers that count the ballots, those scanners or tabulators that Jenny referred to a minute ago. They're computers too. They can make mistakes. So we really need to have not flimsy little pieces of paper, but durable pieces of paper that look legitimate that can be used in a ballot audit process where we statistically sample all the ballots, count up that little sample, compare it to the computer counts and make sure that everything worked right. That's called an audit. And that's an essential part of the process. And you can't do that without paper. As a matter of fact, we listened in our quote to the to somebody who misses lever machines. Can, can we talk for a minute about lever machines? They're sort of the original paperless voting machine and people love them a lot, but you can't audit them. Should we just say a little something about that? You know, why not? Because it begs the other question of should we only use paper? So I'm <laughs> right. There's people so, who probably don't even know what a lever machine is. Well, sure. So they were the original voting machine invented in the late 19th century because of people's concerns about electoral fraud. So they sort of felt like, gosh, we can't trust these people hand counting these ballots with a little pencil lead under their fingers and, and maybe, you know, mismarking ballots as they're counted and all that. But it's called a lever machine because when you finish flipping little toggles on this big front of the machine, you pull a lever. And basically what happens is your vote gets erased in front of you, all the little toggles go back to their original position and your votes get recorded on the backside of the machine on little dials that look kind of like an odometer. And you can't see the odometers ticking over. And you know what? If one of those odometer looking things is stuck, your vote evaporates without a trace. Wow. So you never know. So you never know. So, so the paper ballot allows you to see that. Yeah. And that's really no different than than paperless voting machines. It's just it's the you know it's the computer that can fail to accurately record your vote. So that's why since we do use computers, we got to do audits. It's essential. So, so Jenya, say something about another phrase we hear a lot about voter intent and why paper ballots are important for that. Election officials are not psychic. They want to make sure that when the voter marked their ballot, that was the voter's choice that they originally intended. And unfortunately, different states have different ways that you're allowed to mark a ballot. Some people will use checks. Some people have to draw arrows. Other times it's filling in that little oval. And if you're not used to the new way you have to fill out the ballot, sometimes you can make a mark that isn't accepted by the scanner. But if somebody manually adjudicates the ballot, they can go, oh, this is what the voter wanted to mark. 
I'm going to hold you up there and ask. That was a three-syllable word, at least. Adjudicate. What's that? That is a manual review of the marks on the ballot to make sure that the voters, that was the voters' choice and which marks are considered acceptable and which ones wouldn't be, or which was just something like a stray mark that's just like from tapping the pen of the pencil against the ballot. And I think it's also important to point out that there's a big difference between people voting in person and people voting at home or voting absentee. So if you're voting in person and you present a ballot to the scanner that has marks that are ambiguous in the way that Jenny just said, the scanner can kick it back. But I'd also like to point out an important distinction between people voting in person and people voting at home and mailing their ballots back. If you're voting in person and you mark a ballot with an ambiguous mark and you present it to the scanner, the scanner can kick it back and say, basically to the voter, hey, I can't quite tell what you meant. Could you, could you check your work and you know, try again? But for people voting at home, they don't have the ability to do that. And if they mail in a ballot and it's got an ambiguous mark, then that adjudication process has to happen, as, as Jenya said. And it also has to be logged uh, as part of the, the records and all the other chain of custody stuff as well, so that everybody knows that it's not some weird backroom operation. It's a legitimate part of the process. Speaking of legitimacy of processes, another thing that we saw recently in Clackamas County, and we've seen it elsewhere, is the occasional problem that crops up uh, where a ballot isn't countable. It isn't There's a legibility issue or there's some other problem with it, or the federal write-in ballot that John mentioned earlier. This creates a need to do, Jenya, some sort of a transcription, and that feels like a process that people would get nervous about. The, did you transcribe it properly and, and all of that? What do you do to ensure that voter intent carries through that transcription? All right. So no election official should ever transcribe ballots alone. You need to have two workers who you can actually trust and you know vet. And you need to ensure that they both, one person reads out the candidate and the selection And then the other person reads out the candidate and the selection, and it gets marked together. But nobody marks anything in the transcription without checking the work that the other person had just done. I'm a little confused there. So I'm back in third grade here. I heard you say that one person calls out a selection, the other person marks it, and then they do it again. Does this mean there's now two ballots that should be marked identically? No, it just means that there's the ballot that's being adjudicated and the ballot that will those choices will be transferred over to. And what happens to those ballots then? You now have two ballots. One of them's like not good and the other one's good. And what's the chain of custody? What, what happens there? Okay. Those ballots will after the those will have to be manually tallied. And then those ballots are kept together because again, that's part of the record of the election. And there needs to be a log sheet of any and all ballots that were that required remake, a remake. So paper plays a big role in this process and, and for I think for good reason. So John, any closing thoughts about that when we think about another thing that, that is a demystification I'd love to talk about? Because I think it's related. Something called a, and correct me here, there's a cast ballot record, there's a cast vote record. What is that and how does that play into this? Sure. So those are both terms for the basically the same thing. But if you imagine feeding a piece of paper into a ballot tabulator or scanner, it's going to create an image 
of each sheet of your ballot. That image is going to get passed off to some software that does digital image processing, finds the bubbles, determines which candidate or, or other item the bubble is associated with. And it's going to make a cast vote record, meaning a record of all the votes that you cast for each candidate or referendum question or answer. And that's that's a sort of a digital representation of the meaning of your ballot. And those get retained. And of course, they also get added up uh, to create tallies. And tallies are just, you know, vote totals per candidate. That's that's really the the process of what goes on in a voting place. And then later, those tallies are data. And they get aggregated in an election management system and add it all up to create election results. So the cast vote record is sort of the bridge to that process where for each durable paper ballot of record, you also have a cast vote record. And that sounds a little geeky and weird and why would anybody care? But it's really essential to conducting that ballot audit process in a rapid and efficient way so that a person can look at a paper ballot. They can look at a CVR, see if they disagree with the the computer interpretation, and we can do a statistical analysis that says, if there were any computer mistakes in interpreting the voter's intent, were there enough of them to change an election result? Um, And usually the answer is no, and that's great because we don't have to trust computers to get every single thing perfectly right and record their cast vote record 100% perfect because computers are never going to be perfect. But what we do have to do is make sure that the computers do keep their own record of what their interpretation was to aid people in cross-checking the work of the computers and making sure that computer problems, whether accidental, malicious, or you know whatever, don't actually mess up an election result. So we need computers to, to get rapid counts and election results on election nights that everybody's so keen to have, but we can't trust them. So we cross-check their work with a combination of paper and the data that you asked about to cast vote. And that certainly is what drives a lot of our work at the OSIT Institute and the Trust the Vote Project. But, you know, this begs the question, since we have a nationwide audience, are there are there any jurisdictions where they're not using paper? And have we eradicated all that? Jenya? There are still some jurisdictions that do not use paper, and they are using systems that are very, very old. Now, The one thing about paperless voting machines is at least you don't have wasted paper. On the other hand, there are things that happen with those particular machines called DRE machines. There can be a problem called a graceful shutdown, which is when the battery starts wearing down, you've got about an hour left. At one point, the machine has to decide, oh, am I going to keep accepting votes or am I going to save the votes that I do have and I just won't accept any new votes? And if you're not aware of when a graceful shutdown is going to happen, anybody who puts a ballot in after that process starts, their vote won't be tallied. It'll hold all the, all the votes from the people prior to that happening, but it won't happen with the current ones. So that could mean you know at least 100 or so votes that might not be counted. And that's where having paper would be nice because you could go, oh, well, we put these into the machine. They didn't read them, but they're still here and we need to tally them manually. With a graceful shutdown on a direct recording electronic machine, you don't have that. You're, those votes are lost. Yeah, and that's one of a host of reasons why paperless voting machines can malfunction and do do bad stuff. I think it's a great example, Jenya, because it's one that I think that a lot of people can understand better than you know some of the low-level technical details about file system faults and stuff like that. Because everybody's experienced having an electronic device that goes, bloop, battery out right at just the wrong moment. Um, so that's one of many reasons why paperless voting machines are just 
such a bad idea. I mean, it's just the same as that lever machine with the uh, with the odometer on the back that gets stuck. It's not recording your vote and you might not ever know that. That would be really pretty bad. But I, I want to actually also go to the question, of Greg, that you asked about how many. It wasn't so long ago that only about a third of voters used paper. A few years back, we sort of shifted that to about two thirds of voters used paper. And now we're getting you know well, well over into the 90, 90%. It's really only, to be honest, the poorest jurisdictions that literally can't afford yet to replace you know 10 plus 15 year old paperless voting machines with modern systems that do do use paper. There's one other thing that that's a problem with the with the DRE machines is that your choices are recorded onto a smart card and that's also what activates the machine. With a ballot, you can tell pretty obviously the difference between a ballot that has not been voted on yet and a ballot that has. With those smart cards, you can't tell the difference at all. So if you mix them up, that causes a massive amount of work on the back end for people to figure out, oh God, where did this go? Has this been voted? Paper just really does make things so much simpler for election officials. Yeah, I think it's a good question. Where are the ballots? And you say, oh, they're in these boxes over here with these chain of custody marks. It's a much better answer than where are the ballots? Maybe on this little electronic recording thingy that as a human, I can't see with my eyes. I hope maybe they're here. Not as good an answer. Indeed. Let me kind of wrap this up with one with uh, one other thought. Everyone agrees that paper ballot of record is the currency of democracy. It's so important. We should talk a little bit about the issue of blank ballots versus marked or cast ballots and why or whether there is a problem with stacks of ballots lying around, right? Because people are concerned with, you know, people getting ballots they're not supposed to get or they didn't ask for them or they're piling up on some counter. Jenny, can you say a little bit about the blank version ballot, if you will? Is that a problem? Is Should we be concerned about that? You mentioned saving trees in a matter of speaking a moment ago, and it just brings up all these questions about, you know, they print off all these reams of ballots. What happens to them and, and how do you keep control of them and know where they are and out there in the wild? Is that an issue? Okay. So let's backtrack just a smidge. A blank ballot is a ballot that's been issued to a voter and they decide they don't want to pick any of the races and they cast it. That's within their legal right. They can do that. It's not a problem, but it just, that's something that will be marked on the, on the tabulator. Now, an unused ballot, it's kind of hard for an election official to know exactly how many voters they're going to be having unless they're using automatic voter registration. So they'll order ballots and they order more than they need because they don't want to run out. That's embarrassing. And then if it's a low turnout election, that is a lot of pads of ballots that just don't get used. And because they're pre-printed with the date and the place of the election and the precinct sometimes, you can't reuse them for a future election. It's just wasted paper. And then you have to worry about storing them because you can't just throw them away. They have to get, to, you know, they have to be kept as a record of the election for about 22 months. And then they can, then you can destroy them or you can put, you can cover up the barcodes and have them used like for poll worker training. But that is a lot of time, money, and effort that's spent on, there's an incentive to have a higher turnout election just so those ballots were put to good use. Got it. Got it. Well, Greg, I think part of the question you're asking is concerns that some electionally suspicious people, I guess, might have that those unused ballots are dangerous in some way because they could get turned into fraudulent marked ballots. 
Is that kind of exactly. what you were getting at? Yeah, it's kind of getting there. But yeah. Well, so I think it's important to recognize that there are very important controls around that controls. In fact, that most people have actually seen in person. And I think it's just part of the sort of the election education challenge to help people to understand that a ballot gets counted only if the, if it's first been established that it is legitimate. Just because a ballot gets marked and it's sitting around somewhere doesn't mean it gets counted. I mean, if you, for example, take a absentee ballot and you drive down to your county elections office and you put it on the windshield of a car parked in front of there, it's not going to be counted. Okay. It's just some random piece of paper. So I think it would be great if, if we could say just a little bit about how that legitimacy gets established. And there's two ways. I'll do one. Maybe, Jenny, you could do the other. But the first way is when you vote in person, you get checked against a poll book to make sure you're a legitimate voter and you're only issued a ballot if you've been first been shown to be a legitimate voter. That's the only way a ballot gets marked in a voting place. And once it, mar- once it, it is marked, it gets scanned and put in a box. And any other blank ballot, sorry, any other unused ballot sitting around or just sitting there being unused. And then there's a whole separate process for determining le- the legitimacy of absentee ballots. And that's that's super important because people say, well, what if you send absentee ballots to people who didn't ask for them? It's like, well, if they don't vote them, they vote them. If they do vote them, then they'll get assessed. So, Jenny, could you say a little bit about the process of how election officials take a ballot that's been mailed back and decide whether it should be counted? Okay, so when you when you mail out a ballot, you also recruit, include in the ballot package a secrecy sleeve and a return envelope. And when the voter votes their ballot, they put it in the sleeve and then put it in the return envelope. The voter has to sign that return envelope. And there's also barcode identifiers on there. So when the ballot goes back to the election office, the barcode gets scanned to match it up to say, hey, yes, we did send this ballot to this voter. Then they go and check the signatures. Sometimes it's done digitally. Sometimes it's done you know, by, by humans. And the signatures have to match. If they don't match the ballot either gets set aside or the election office usually contacts the voter and is like, hey, we want to make sure that this is actually your signature here. Can you come in and verify? So once that happens and the signatures get verified, the ballots are removed from the envelope, but they're kept in their sleeves so you don't get to see how a voter voted. And then those get sent to go through the central count ballot scanner. And you make sure that you know how many stacks of vote by mail ballots you have because it's a separate category than in-person ballots or early voting ballots. And those numbers have to match. If you suddenly get a bunch of ballots that wait for you get a huge discrepancy, it's like, okay, so what's going on here? Did we scan these twice or did somebody try to add in more ballots? And for those voters who don't receive their vote by mail ballot or they just they're, they've moved and they didn't update their address, those ballots cannot be forwarded to voters. Those go back to the election office into something called the tray of shame. And generally you want as light of a tray of shame as is humanly possible. I love the tray of shame issue. Well, that's great stuff. And and there's a lot to discuss and future episodes will undoubtedly pick a number of these other pieces up. But let's move on to some other good stuff before we get to question time this week. And and uh, I think that I'll start and because uh, I just want to sort of be braggadocious a bit about the incredible opportunity that we had to send a delegation of our team at the OSIT Institute to Copenhagen for its fifth annual Democracy Summit, which was a gathering of 500, actually more this time of the world's of leaders in pro-democracy and, uh, and defensive democracy. 
and democratic institutions. We were we were blessed by the presence of some of the the, the big greatest leaders there, including former President Barack Obama with an, a closing keynote. But just wanted to point out that that was good stuff because it gave us an opportunity to participate in some really important conversations about disinformation, misinformation, mitigation, about how to preserve and protect and securify, if you will, election equipment. But that's my that was my good thing is that, that democracy is being defended worldwide. And what we discovered is a lot of the issues we have here exist around the world. John, what about you? What was your good stuff item for this week? Well, I think it would have to be something about the recent primary elections. So in general, just a huge thanks to all the election officials at work in this primary season, in spite of the unprecedented pressure and even intimidation of them. But I'm thinking of one particular election official who's asked to remain nameless, who volunteered to be an election administrator fire jumper in a state that has a lot of advantages that other states in terms of election administration. But it's also one of the states that is the most bedeviled by misinformation about stolen elections. And in one county, the local election officials were having so much trouble getting the election set up that my fire jumper friend got tapped by the secretary of state to step in as acting head of elections for the primary to basically displacing the local election head who wasn't doing such a great job. And here's the, the, the cool part. The election went smoothly. Uh, it created no uh, grist for the disinformation mill and, and it really worked well for, for all concerned. It turned out to be a, an amicable arrangement. And my fire jumper friend was very trepidatious going into it and was really grateful uh, how much, how appreciated he was. So there was no potentially ghastly adversarial situation of state versus local election officials. And in fact, it it worked great. So good for the Secretary of State of getting a fire jumper list and good for my buddy who did a fire jump. And I think that's a great model for, uh, for keeping things amicable. Good. Always good to hear about success stories like that where things could, uh, could, could get sideways quickly. Jenya, how about you? It's certainly been nice to see that language access has been prioritized this year. And there are several jurisdictions. Michigan, they will be printing in some townships, they'll be printing their first Arab language ballots. And I believe that there have been great strides towards printing ballots in languages that are compatible in for indigenous tribes. And it's nice to see that inclusiveness is becoming more of a trend. And I hope it stays that way. Me too. Me too. That's great. So with that in mind, I think it's time to turn to our faceless voice of democracy, Miss Frayne Masters, to give us some questions and maybe some answers. I don't know how many answers I have, but I got some questions. And also I jotted down graceful shutdown as my new favorite term that I've heard about elections and technology. That's so great. And I also have an idea, which is I think we should create a Rube Goldberg that explains the whole voting process. But with that, let's move to the questions. What percentage of the U.S. population votes using voter-marked paper ballots. What percentage would like to take this question? All right. If you, in 2022, across all 50 states and U.S. territories, about 61% of voters vote using voter-marked paper ballots, either in person or by mail. Um, 20.7% of voters use ballot marking devices where you touch something on a touch screen, but it prints out a paper ballot with voters' choices. And then, of course, there's the 7.5% of the of the population who are still stuck using the old-fashioned uh, DRE machines with no paper trail. Those are getting phased out, though. Um, I would like to see in our social media a pie chart of those percentages. That was a lot of numbers really fast. That's great. Thank you, Jenya. Here's another question. 
I'm going to dive right into. What happens to all the ballots after an election that weren't issued to voters? We kind of touched on this a little bit earlier. We did. John, you want to take that one? Sure. Well, uh, pre-printed ballots can't be used in another election. Um, each each ballot is for just one election. And uh, in a low turnout election, there are lots of unused pads ballots and all of that stuff, uh, including the unused ballots, everything from the voting process has to be stored and preserved for 22 months. So it is just a stack of unused paper that's very important to keep track of. After the retention period, then things can be destroyed or used for training or or whatever. And uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to add a frame to your your vocabulary for the day. I just love what, what Jenya said earlier about the tray of shame of ballots get returned because they got sent to the wrong address. And I think it's also something election officials try to avoid as well. But we, we got we to have our, our, our vocabulary for the day. I think that's just wonderful. That's great. Well, hey, thank you to everybody who submitted questions. Uh, those two were good ones. People often ask me, what can I do to improve elections? Well, one key thing is to ensure that your voting jurisdiction has, wait for it, a durable paper ballot of record. We think digital technology is clearly necessary and required for many aspects of modern election administration, especially in the digital age. But for the foreseeable future, we need to have a durable paper ballot of record for what needs to become a fundamental part of every election, post-election results audits. In fact, inevitable recounts could benefit from those prior audits. But with the midterms some 17 weeks away, audits are a subject for another episode coming soon. Okay, well, wrap-up thoughts. Going back to the claim that you can't trust election results made by computers, we agree. But we don't have to. If every voter creates a marked paper ballot, either by hand or with a marking machine that Jenya just reminded us about, then we can trust but verify using ballot audits to detect and correct a situation where a malfunction yielded an incorrect election result. I won't say anything more about that because I think that's a super important part of the process that we should talk about another time. Indeed. So thanks for that, John. Uh, Please remember that we at the Trust the Vote Project are working to make election technology more verifiable, accurate, secure, and transparent. We call that the vast mandate, and we're doing it by building open source voting technology, the people's voting system, as we call it. If you'd like to support our work, please join the Trust the Vote Project at trustthevote.org and click the join button at the top. An annual membership is just $25. However, if you contribute at least $5 per month, we will also give you insider access to extended episode conversations where we get into more detail about stuff like this, Zoominars to meet the members of the team and discuss their work, and even some limited edition gear to support the project and Dead Men Don't Vote podcast and lots of other groovy stuff. Oh, I don't know about anybody else, but my heart went pitter-patter that the midterms are 17 weeks away. If you'd like to ask us an elections-related question or otherwise be in touch, please follow us on Twitter at DeadMenDon'tVote. There's no apostrophe in that. Or Trust the Vote. There's never been an apostrophe in that. Or on Facebook, DeadMenDon'tVote. Or just email us at inquiry at osetinstitute.org. Finally, please take a moment to write a short review on Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so that more people hear our message about how we can improve our elections. Again, I'm Gregory Miller, and on behalf of Jenya Coulter and John Sevis, thank you for listening to Dead Men Don't Vote. Please remember, it's your civic duty and civil right to participate in elections. Let's all be pro-democracy by prioritizing country over party and supporting free and fair elections in your community and across America. Until next time, make sure you're properly registered and ready to vote because, yes, as Frayne said, the midterm election is about 17 weeks away, and our democracy depends on you, 
now more than ever.